This podcast is supported by VPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to all our lovely listeners today. I'm Jess Noonan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Peter Jewell. Hi, Pete. How are you, Jess? I'm good. Glad to be under lockdown. This is our first interview out of lockdown, I think. Yes, you poor thing, being stuck in that <laughs> regime. I was out, as you know, out of the outside of the uh, the cauldron. So um, it's great. To, it's great to be a bit freer. Definitely. Now today we're speaking with Liz Huey, who is a sessional panel member at Panels Victoria and is one of the leading experts in acoustic engineering in Victoria. Welcome to the show, Liz. Oh, thanks, Jess, and thanks, Peter, and thanks so much for inviting me on. I'm a, I'm a bit of a fan of your podcast. <laughs> Always good to hear. <laughs> now, Liz, are you able to just give a little bit of an introduction and background, I guess, as to how you got into acoustic engineering? Yes, I actually um, studied engineering at Monash Uni, and I was kind of a, a bit of a talentless musician, and I, I really wanted to follow something in music, but I, I didn't quite cut the mustard. Um, and... For some reason, I thought, well, maybe I could marry engineering and music um, and get into acoustic engineering, and I originally wanted to be involved in concert hall design. Um, but that's actually quite a niche area of acoustics, as I find found out. And although I did get some exposure to that area, I ended up working in the planning um, side of things, which I really enjoyed. So I was very, I was very lucky to find, I guess, a role um, that I could really thrive in and that introduced me to many wonderful people along the way. Liz, there's a big crossover between the world of acoustic engineering and the planning space. Can you just talk to that briefly? Yeah, I think it's, you know, sound and noise is just part of the physical environment uh, and it's something that has to be considered and it's something that's sometimes difficult to consider and, um, you know, sometimes the noise is obvious. For instance, if you live next to an airport or a freeway, you can, you can see, you can hear what's producing the noise um, and, and you're willing to, I guess, you know, look into solutions to try and, and make the built environment a, a more pleasant space. But when you look at, say, you know, high-rise apartments controlling noise from one area to another, you can put all this remediation works in the building, but you can't see, you can't see the works. So when you're in there, you're not sure about, you know, the effect of these remediation works. And and I think that's where you kind of forget about sound and noise. And it's not until, you know, later down the track after everything's been planned and built where you might come across a noise problem. So it's quite a, you know, it's, it's, it's a very pervasive element of our senses um, and sometimes it, it can be forgotten if you can't see it. And, and just some basics, Liz, the, the difference between decibels and hertz and how the two applied in acoustic engineering. This is a bit of a techie uh, question. Yeah, hopefully everyone won't, won't fall asleep at this stage. So decibel is really a, um, a single number that describes how loud the sound is. Um, hertz is, is a number which is a description of the pitch of the noise or the frequency. Um, so, for instance, you know, a jet engine... Um, at, at about 100 metres, they often quote, is, is around 120 to 130 decibels, which is the threshold of pain. So it will hurt your ears if you're, if you're standing next to it. Um, you know, if you're in your house vacuuming, um, you're probably exposing yourself to about 70 decibels. And, you know, if you're having a normal conversation in an office, it's probably in the, you know, 50 decibel range. Um, 
So Hertz, sorry, Peter. I was going to ask there, Liz, decibel readings, they're not linear, are they? Aren't they exponential as they go up? Yeah, they're logarithmic. So basically um, a 10 dB increase in a decibel level is, is a doubling of, of the volume or, yeah, a doubling of loudness, if you like. So, you know, your, your TV at 60 decibels, if you want it to be twice as loud, you just turn it up and until it measures about 70 decibels. Um, and then when you add two decibel sources together, it's not 60 plus 60 equals 120. It's 60 plus 60 equals 63. So um, it, it does get a bit complex for people who don't understand the logarithm, logarithmic scale. Um, and then Hertz is a description of the pitch of the noise, which is the frequency. So the low frequencies right up to the high frequencies. Um, for instance, you know, um, doof doof music in a nightclub would be that really low frequency. And then um, a high pitch, you know, piccolo uh, is a higher, a much higher frequency. Um, an orchestra tunes to a pitch of uh, a frequency of 440 hertz, which is the concert A. And, uh, yeah, the... The um, the different frequencies of noise can also affect how how they affect you personally. So you know, some that's why alarms are generally high pitched. So they put you on high alert and they make you feel uncomfortable. Liz, there are four types of noise: continuous, intermittent, impulsive, and low frequency. Can you explain those terms? Yeah, sure. So basically, continuous noise is is a constant noise, if you like. Um, for instance, if you're working in an office, normally the heating and ventilation system is constantly running in the background. Um, and sometimes you actually won't notice it until it goes off. I don't know if you've ever, you know, been in your office, if, you, if it's on a time clock, you're in your office and then it, you're working late and then at six o'clock, you know, the, the whole air conditioning system goes off and all of a sudden you realise how quiet it is. Um, you know, you've been basically working in that continuous noise all day, but because it's of a particular frequency, um, getting back to that hertz, um, and it's at a, a particular decibel level, it probably hasn't really affected you. Oh, it's the thing, um, I think it's heaven when, they, when the air conditioning yeah. goes off. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Because all day you've worked in it and you don't notice, and then all of a sudden it's like a sigh of relief at the end of the day, it goes off. Definitely. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And then, um, so that's, you know, a good example of continuous noise. Intermittent noise is something that switches on, stays on for a period of time and then switches off. And generally we work in, when we talk about intermittent noise, we relate it back to um, what might happen in a 30 minute period. And that's really because of the way uh, that noise is assessed in regards to the EPA regulations. So, you know, in a 30 minute period, for instance, if you, um, had a, 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 I'm trying to think of a good example, like a, a photocopier that, you know, was going on for 10 minutes of a, a big printing job and then switched off for the rest of the 30 minutes, you know, that's your intermittent noise. Impulsive noise is like the short, short duration pulse noises. If someone was hammering, for instance, or, you know, a bit of a jackhammer um, that's outside. And then frequency again is is back to that hertz, which we've described as already. So, the low frequency, you know, is that is a is a low frequency rumble, um, doof doof music, uh, anything in that you know lower end of the spectrum. Okay, and so Liz, is acoustic engineering just about noise? Uh, it, good question. I actually think acoustic engineering is kind of about communication. Um, so, you know, acoustic engineering 
in in regards to what happens in the planning sphere is really uh, about noise and decibels because what we try to do is you know work out whether a certain um you know certain industry or certain premise will meet a certain noise level but really it's how you communicate that information because because what we do in the planning sphere is provide information to people to make a decision um so yes in a way it probably is just about noise maybe it shouldn't be maybe it should be about um uh, a, a more holistic approach um about and it should include things like health um and noise effects of health but yeah as a as a as engineering it's pretty black and white i guess it it really is just about about noise and meeting certain criteria yeah it, it just there's just talking about the amenity impacts on health can, yeah can you it just explain to our listeners some sort of the consequences of you know bad noise outcomes yeah. for people there's been there's still is a lot of um research and study going on in regards to um health impacts but the main ones well the most obvious ones are, are you know how noise affects your sleep um and obviously you know there is there are lots of bad health effects associated with um poor sleep patterns um i think there's also some relationships to cardiovascular disease um obviously if you're exposed to high levels of noise it can also affect your cognitive cognitive performance you know for instance if you're if you're trying to work in the office and there's construction noise going on outside you know you, having all that noise can make it very difficult to concentrate and communicate and and those sorts of effects if they build up you know it might be okay if you're in an office and there's construction noise for a day but say you're a school student in a school that's you know under a flight path of an airport or right next to a a major freeway and you're exposed to that noise every day and and you can't concentrate every day then obviously that can also lead to um some poor outcomes and health effects but you know, acoustic engineering itself doesn't really take into account um, the health effects, but it, it relies on using noise criteria set by others, which, you know, presumably does take into account research on health effects. I'm going to try and ask this question, which um, I, I was just thinking about then. Obviously, um, you know, there, there's little noises in our environments every single day, some of which are really, really annoying, but they might not be particularly loud. It might just be, you know, I'm thinking even, even you know, like a mosquito in the night or, you know, like just those really high pitch sometimes or just really irritating noises that might not be too loud. If you're exposed to them over a long period of time or if someone is, um, I guess, bothered by a particular noise regardless of its um, of its um, decibels or its or its hertz, what what kind of psychological impact does that have on people? Uh, I guess it just can raise your level of frustration and your level of annoyance in general. I mean, I don't know. I'm not qualified really to um, to surmise what what health or psychological impact it might have. But I know, you know, for instance, as you say, the mosquito one is a is a is a is one that can be really annoying. You know, you're trying to get to sleep and there's this tiny mosquito, you know, right buzzing next to your ear and then you go to smack it and the noise comes back and you smack it again and you just find that you get really, you get more and more frustrated um, until finally you get up, turn the light on and, you know, try and find it. So I, I just imagine you can work yourself up into a state 
of a bit of frustration and frenzy. Um, I think the, uh, the other example, Liz, is probably, um, and one that we deal with quite a lot in planning, is around um, noise associated with schools or with childcare centres, which, yes. which shouldn't be considered an annoying noise, but for some people... Um, they get really bothered by that. And, and so they object to planning applications for those uses on that basis. But there's there's not necessarily a measurable um, noise impact, I wouldn't imagine, from those sorts of uses. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that one because I, there's, there's a couple of things um, in the childcare centre sphere. But the first one is anecdotally, um, and I, obviously I haven't, I haven't gone back to do enough surveys but a couple of years many years ago um, I did a, a, a planning application acoustic assessment for a um, childcare centre in Ringwood and I remember the the neighbours on either side were you know objectors um, and then when we when we went back you know after the event and and measured the noise from the children to make sure that that all the noise remediation works had had a, a positive effect um, it came out. The neighbours said, "Oh, actually, now that now that it's it's working, we actually enjoy hearing the noise of the children." They were both retired couples, and they're saying, "Oh, we actually really enjoy the noise of the children. We didn't realise that you know um, that that we would that we would get so much joy, you know, out of hearing the children play." So, first of all, in some cases, people might object because they're worried about a noise which may or may not affect them later on. Um, but the other thing that has happened, which you know, m- might be detrimental is that childcare centres have got a lot bigger, um, you know, in the last few years. So instead of catering for maybe 20 children, you know, you're getting these super centres that cater for maybe 80 to 100 children. So um, perhaps there was a sweet spot where, you know, if you had the right number of children and only had a couple of outdoor um, playtimes set during the day, you know, people would enjoy that noise. But now because you've got much bigger centres and it's probably um, you know, spread the noise outside is spread out over a whole day. You know, maybe it has become a little bit more annoying to people who live next door. Yeah, eighty kids, or eighty to one hundred kids is far um, far louder than twenty. So yeah. exactly, <laughs> that would be yeah. uh, hard to live next door to. Liz, yeah, Liz, that um, brings us to the question of noise relativity, and yes, um, <clears throat> you know, I've I've had that same childcare sort of thing where. Um, people have objected to noise saying, you know, I've raised my kids, I don't listen to anyone else's kids. But um, a local example, you know, there's a local steam train and here, and I I love the sound of it. I love the sound of it. It gives me joy. Other people complain about it. So that we both hear the same thing, but how it affects us um, is the, 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 the noise impact is very much psychological, whether you are, you know, you like it or you relax with that sound or you it, or that sound gets to you. So that's right. Can you just talk about that relativity about noise? Yeah, there's a couple of things um, that affect, I guess, how you how people react to the noise. And um, one is your attitude to the noise source, as you say. So, you know, you like steam trains. It probably conjures up, you know, a nice romantic notion um, other people hear the noise, and and maybe maybe they're in it. Maybe the steam train runs when they're involved in something that needs a lot of concentration, or there's just something about it that they don't like. Then the same noise level, you know, to you it's going to be really pleasant, and to someone else it's going to be really annoying. Um, and there's a lot, a lot of noise sources 
like that. I mean, I live in a rural area and there's a, a property a couple of doors down where some of the kids ride their um, motorbikes on the weekend. Now, it doesn't bother me because I, I think, oh, it's great. The kids are having a good time doing something outdoors, you know, and it's only, it's not all day. It's only during the daytime. But, you know, the neighbours across the road, they don't really like it at all. Uh, they find that it, it ruins the you know, the, the natural pristine environment that we sometimes live in. But really in terms of noise level, it's no different to them running their tractor, you know, or mowing their lawn. Um, it's just that they hear these motorbikes and um, I guess maybe it conjures up a different picture in my mind. Maybe they think in their mind, maybe they think, you know, it's a couple of delinquents on a property, yep. you know, running their motorbikes around yeah. the thing. Uh, and it's it's the same with wind farms, you know. Some people are really into renewable energy so um, they're not going to worry about the noise of wind farms but other people you know don't like the sight of a wind farm and so any noise that a wind farm produces is going to be annoying mm. to them i suppose hence the the value of having standards liz so we can always reference back to the standards yes that's right i mean and and the thing about the standards is it's it's not a one size um fits all standard it's it's not you have a standard and if you meet the standard 100 percent of the people you know, will be satisfied. Um, the standards are really set up, I guess, so that 90% or the majority of people would be satisfied. Uh, but there will always be some outliers, you know, in that satisfaction curve, if you like. And, and those standards, Liz, are, are very much site context driven, aren't they? Um, in Victoria, they are. So, um, you know, the standards for uh in in urban areas, the standards take into account, you know, zoning and background noise levels. Um, in rural areas, uh, the standards really just take into account the zoning, the zoning factors, or the way they work in Victoria at the moment. Yes. Now, Liz, how well considered are acoustics and the associated amenity impacts of those in strategic planning? Do you think this comes too late in, in the piece, and should it be considered? earlier i'm thinking things like development along train lines or within airport environs and that sort of thing there seems to be an inherent tension um, between some of those uses within strategic planning so do you have any thoughts about that yeah I, I think it comes way too late in the piece i mean often we get a, pl a master plan you know for a new precinct and the townhouses are located right next to the loading bay of the supermarket. You know, the childcare centre is located on the busiest um, main road intersection. Um, but I, I understand that, you know, acoustics is just one factor and there's lots of other competing issues to consider uh, in terms of planning. But it would be nice to come in early in the picture just to highlight uh, the issues that are associated with noise because even though, you know, you can probably have some kind of noise remediation, if you get a better spatial arrangement, it's going to be, you're going to end up with a much better result in the long run and probably, you know, save some money along the way. And so what about this notion um, within planning? Obviously, we uh, generally advocate for density along major um, transport routes or major transport hubs. Um, that has a number of um, potential amenity impacts, not just acoustics, but things like, um, you know, air quality impacts and those sorts of things. But what, what do you, what kind of impacts do you see from, the, from that acoustic perspective in putting density on major roads? Um, so it just leads to a more expensive building facade. So if you if you build, um, 
you know, apartments adjacent to major roads, you can obviously design them and build them so that you have a, a, a reasonable internal amenity. What you might miss out on is, you know, a, a quieter amenity if you have a balcony overlooking the transport hubs. But I think in that case, you know, if you can, if you can provide a reasonable internal amenity, then you also get the benefits of living near a major transport hub. So you've got easy access to, you know, shops and public transport. So there's other benefits which probably um, weigh up, you know, the the loss of, of your quiet outdoor space, but you'll be able to sleep well at night, you know, and, and have a good amenity inside. So I think having, you know, apartments and things near major transport hubs is not, not such a, not such a problem um, as long as it's well designed. There's, I'm, I mean, I'm pushing, I don't think Jess agrees with me on this, but I'm pushing for high densities near parklands um, simply because you can have your windows open at night and yeah. you've got the green space. It, in terms of people's well-being, um, you know, they're so much better off around green spaces and just having that, <clears throat> you know, I mean, I, I know when I'm sleeping next to a, in a major activity centre, I can't have the window open at night um, and therefore I don't get good ventilation. Um, I don't know it, why it, I disagree with you on that. <laughs> well, well, you haven't exactly, you know, jumped in and supported me on this, Jess, over the journey. But anyway, m- moving on, Liz, the, the, can you talk a bit about the, how the EPA noise controls work? Um, in planning, we're used to the existing use rights advantage. Yes. So, so, you know, a use, say a factory's in place, and you have residential development around it, all of a sudden the factory's now got to comply with new standards. Yeah. That's, that's the noise approach. I don't know what it's like interstate, but it, it, it's so out of whack with how planning works. Do you see there's some sort of balancing act with that? Yeah, that is a tricky one. And in a way it comes down to the planning decision. So as you say, you know, say you're the operator of, of a factory and I want to come and build a, a big apartment building next door, then obviously there's a disconnect there between I'm introducing a, a new noise sensitive area and it might put a big impost on you to have to reduce the noise. Um, so that is a problem. But in my mind, that's where, you know, the decision maker has to really weigh up you know what is the appropriate decision, and and maybe it, that's maybe it's not a good area to build an apartment building, or if that's you know the future of if 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 for some reason that whole area is earmarked to eventually go to a residential um, kind of use, then the commercial uses need to understand or need to be told that and have have to be able to plan you know to exit the area at some stage, um, so. I think, you know, I think a lot of responsible authorities uh, need to be more responsible, if you like, when it comes to making those sorts of decisions. And we seem to be moving more towards a system of, um, you know, agent of change being uh, the person that's responsible for those changes to be made to their building. Are you seeing a lot more of that these days? Well, the agent of change is uh, obviously applies to the live music um, venue. I have actually seen some uh, permit conditions associated with agent of change related to commercial properties. I think there was one in an inner city area where there was an existing um, butcher 
and someone wanted to build an apartment next door and the planning permit said that you needed to consider the noise from the butcher and make sure that, you know, you uh, included um, remediation treatment within your uh, habitable, you know, apartment uh, to make sure that the, the, the butcher was protected, if you like. I, I don't, that's not the EPA approach, you know, but it was something in a planning permit condition. So, so yes, maybe the agent of change is something that's, that's slowly creeping in to areas other than live music venues, um, but it hasn't been adopted by the EPA yet. I, I think, Liz, we worked on a job many years ago and it was for a mail centre. Yes, um, I remember that. And, and that was a case, Jess, where I think it was in Preston, the mail centre had been there for many years as a big yeah. employer, but the strategic approach by the council was to encourage high-density residential and <clears throat> it, there was a conflict, there's a tension between, you know, this existing very important community facility and residential push. Um, and it was solved, I think, Liz, by the Great Wall of Preston where the, it was. <laughs> the, the developers just had to pay for a like a, a sound wall on the mail centre site. It was incredibly messy appeal. But anyway. Um, one of the other issues with that, Peter, which is really interesting, is that if you, you know, you could build that apartment, um, a 10-storey apartment building next to a mail centre, and you could you could have a very good amenity inside, but it would mean that you can't have openable windows and you couldn't have any um, balconies facing um, the mail centre because the way that EPA legislation works is that it, it uses an external area for your um, assessment point. And what that results in further is a, a really poor outcome in terms of a sustainable development, you know, and living conditions where you can't open your windows at all because your windows aren't openable. So the that is one of the big problems you know, with the agent of change, using this agent of change um, legislation is that sometimes you'll get a, uh, a residential building which certainly provides a reasonably reasonable acoustic amenity internally but provides no other benefits. Well, that, that Liz, you know, before I go on to live music, um, yeah. you know, that's one of the healthy buildings thing. You know, one of, the, one of the nine principles is to have good ventilation. Yes. To have the air in your room changed it, you know, three to six times, particularly if you've, you know, well, that's more sort of communal spaces. But so sometimes people have a solution, but it causes further problems. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, the live music venues, this is yes. a this is a vexed issue, um, Liz, because uh, just to give our listeners a background and tell me if I'm wrong, Liz or Jess, but the, there's uh, Melbourne's had a tradition of pub venues for live music and it was a great kindergarten or introduction for a lot of bands to start their gigs and but then when <clears throat> those pubs were surrounded by more housing or or people with a different uh, sensitivity they started complaining and those venues had to close or were very compromised so the state government introduced new controls which gave live music venues a special pass. Am I doing okay so far, Liz? Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> and that was to do with some very good lobbying. So uh, live venues are treated differently to just about anyone else. Is that an equitable approach? I think in this case it 
probably is a reasonable approach. I mean, if, if you look back at the history, so live music venues have often been in, um, you know, commercial areas with uh, where there's lots of restaurants, a lot of activity. Uh, think Smith Street, um, you know, areas within the Melbourne uh, CBD. And then responsible authorities made decisions to allow people to move into these areas. So they allowed residential buildings in mixed use areas. And, and that was done, you know, to in the city to, to get more people, the postcode 3000, get more people living in the city, make it a more vibrant area. And, and people move into these areas because they think, oh, it's great. I can go out to nightclubs. I can go to restaurants really easily. And then they find that they don't like the noise um, of those types of um, uses, you know, when they're not attending them. So it's okay once if you're in the restaurant, but if you're in your apartment next door, then all of a sudden you don't like the noise of that. So, you know, live music venues basically had a, had a raw deal. Um, one of the, the good examples of that is the Rainbow Hotel in Fitzroy. Great live music venue. You know, they, they had music pretty much every night and on the weekends and then all of a sudden all these apartments were built adjacent to it and they found that people were complaining about the music and they could no longer operate um, in their normal, normal um, capacity. So, um, and it wasn't their fault. It wasn't anything of their own doing. It was just decisions made by others. So I think, I think it's a, a really good way of protecting live music venues. And, you know, the legislation doesn't apply to just any venue um, that plays live music. It has to be, uh, you know, a, a venue of significance, if you like, like the Corner Hotel. Um, so I, I think it's a good approach. That, that, that scares me a little bit because it just suggests that if you've got good lobbyists, you can make a case for anything. You know, why is what's fair about that when the factory that's operating has to close down because it can't possibly satisfy the new, the, you know, the standards? So I'm just a bit troubled, Liz. Do you see where I'm, you uh, know, one I law, do. One, I, I think it really. One land, one law. I, I think it still comes down to, you know, good planning decisions. So the factory that you talk about should be in either an industrial or commercial area. And if it's, you know, a heavy industry, it should be an industrial area. And there should be appropriate buffers. So, um, you know, there shouldn't be any residential um, dwellings within a certain distance of that factory so but, that... But, but but say the traditional bootmaker in Brunswick, you know, yeah. which supplied a lot of employment to um, minority groups, um, they, they don't have the capital to relocate to, you know, out in the distant suburbs. Um, yeah. So I'm just troubled. I'm troubled. Yeah, and, may, and maybe this is where, you know, the previous discussion that we had about the agent of change, maybe the agent of change really needs to apply to um, commercial and industrial noise as well. Uh, and, and as I said, I've, I have seen some decisions where uh, responsible authorities have built that into planning permit conditions. So we just need to get the EPA on board with that as well. Uh, it's, it is a... Uh, I, I'm not sure that the live music venues is is a favoured industry, um, but it certainly is something that's been deemed worthy of having some kind of protection. And I guess it's also one that's close to a lot of people's hearts. It you know it forms part of integral part of Melbourne's culture. So um, I can see why 
it has been given special allowances in that regard. But yeah, I think your point, Pete, is is still a valid one. It's um it'll be interesting to see how this sort of evolves over um, coming years in particular, now that we we really do have quite a lot of uh, growth areas in particular that are encroaching on those industrial areas. So I think it'll be a watch this space. Um, now, Liz, I wanted to ask you as well, I mean, we, we've spoken a lot about external sources of noise. What about internal sources of noise? So things like headphones, are we starting to witness a silent deafening of the population? I know that's been a very topical issue in um, in recent months, particularly given uh, COVID lockdowns and how much everyone's probably been using their, their headphones to listen to podcasts and those sorts of things. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I've, I've actually got some interesting thoughts on this one. I We had a, uh, a little workshop a while ago talking about, you know, threats to the acoustic industry, engineering industry. And I said, I wouldn't be surprised in 20 or 30 years if everyone was deaf and so there won't be any requirement for acoustic engineers um you know sometimes (laughs) (laughs) i mean you've probably experienced this this, um yourself but if you go on i often go on some public transport and i can hear someone's music through their headphones and they're sitting you know three or four seats away and i'm on a tram which is pretty noisy uh, I'm horrified, actually, because I think, well, if I can hear what music you're listening to, I can only imagine how loud that is, you know, right next to your ears with your earbuds. Um, so I'm I'm certain that there is going to be a whole generation of people that will have very poor hearing. Well, Liz, you know, I, I was forever telling my kids to turn their headphones down. I mean, it's the iPod generation. I know we don't have iPods anymore, Jess, but... Yeah, yeah. It, it's almost started with a Walkman, Jess. You probably don't know yeah. what a Walkman is. but I definitely had a Walkman, thank you, <laughs> and a Discman. And, and and it's just that we can do so many things externally, Liz, you know, making yes. sure our environment's good. But if people don't take responsibility or aren't aware of the dangers, I mean, I've had that experience too, listening to music on trains and trains. I know. And the damage that must be doing. I know. And that's exactly how I feel. I'm shocked, constantly shocked. I just go, I kind of want to go and tap them on the shoulder and say, excuse me, do you realise that you're doing a lot of damage to your hearing? <laughs> but, but, oh, okay. but also that just the fact that it's quite rude because the rest of us then can't listen to what we're trying to listen to because we've got the doof doof <laughs> in the background coming from the guy four seats away. <laughs> and Liz, acoustic engineering is you know, highly technical uh, how, the, how are there ways to make information more accessible? And I'm thinking I understand the Melbourne City Council did a noise atlas of the Melbourne CBD so that people thinking of moving in there yes. could, could look at this, web, you know, listen uh, on this website to hear what the noise was like in that precinct. Y- your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Um, you know, it's really hard to describe noise, it's much better to listen to it. You know, I can I can talk to you about decibels till I'm blue in the face, um, but until you experience it um, in real life, you know, actually hear the sound, it really has no meaning to you. So, so I think anything anything like that that demonstrates um, noise levels or the types of noise that people might experience is a great idea. Um, so the Melbourne. I think the Melbourne Airport has a, a website that shows all the, uh, the the noise contours, I guess, associated with the airport. But it would be great if they could couple that with, as you say, a, some kind of sound 
information so you could actually hear what something sounds like. Um, the EPA also has a few good publications, but again, it's it's words on a page, and I think I think the the best thing is to actually be able to hear you know what what's being described. Um, so hopefully, with advances in technology, uh, you know there might be might be more room for that kind of uh, tool to exist. Thank you to Song Bowden Planners, who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Now Liz, 20 minute neighbourhoods are something that's been promoted um, quite extensively through Plan Melbourne um, in Victoria. If we start to see, I guess, a greater range of land use mixes within a particular area, does it mean that we need to, as a society, start to accept a slightly higher level of background noise? Uh, I think it may come down to, you know, appropriate design, spatial planning, adequate controls. Um, So before I moved down, I live on the Mornington Peninsula, so I I live in a semi-rural area at the moment. But before that, I used to live in in a city, Richmond, um, which is probably a a 20-minute neighbourhood. And surprisingly, the street that I lived in was very quiet. Um, I could almost hear, you know, some distant tram noise and I can, I, I live near the brewery, the Carlton United Brewery. So on, on certain nights I could actually hear some of the machinery running in the brewery. But overall the, I'd have to say that the, um, the environment, especially at night was pretty quiet. So, so I would call that a good example of a 20 minute neighbourhood. And I can't see why, you know, if you, if it's appropriately designed, you can still have um, some ex- excellent residential amenity and still have all the services that you want within that 20-minute neighbourhood. And how do you find then being down at the countryside? Because I know a lot of people find, a lot of city people find that that noise or that deafening quietness sort of quite yeah. disconcerting. How do you find that? Oh, I love it. It doesn't worry me at all. Um, I, I guess I'm quite flexible in that, but it, it's an interesting point you raise because I had a friend from New York who came to visit me and stay overnight in Dramana and she could not sleep. So she ended up going upstairs to the living room, turning on the television and then falling asleep. That's and she hilarious. said that basically the silence freaked her out. So she couldn't, <laughs> she couldn't cope with it. I just crave that quietness. Right. It's um, yeah, it is interesting. I, I have no difficulty uh, with, with background noise so if I'm in the city and I can hear some some extra traffic it doesn't worry me and and down here I, I love the quiet but you get you know you get frogs and birds that wake you up in the morning well, <laughs> well the rain's room. the rain's very noisy isn't it so, oh yeah the rain on the roof is very and, noisy <laughs> and, and people don't realize that trees you know in a in a strong wind are yes. noisy too but yeah but now uh, the historical view um there's were cities louder in previous generations and do we know? I mean, I know that the Romans complained about city noise. Yeah, I, I had to think about this because I, I don't really know much historically. Um, 
But, you know, going into my the repertoire of historical movies that I've watched, I would say that in the old days maybe they had much worse in, um, sound insulation. So, you know, maybe no no windows as such, just holes in the walls instead of having glass. Um, perhaps people were not as sensitive to noise because there were so many other things to worry about rather than noise. That's a good point. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking <laughs> about the mining towns. I mean, there was non-stop noise from machinery in mining towns. Yes. In the inner city, there would have been, you know, a lot of noise from pretty crude machinery. Yes. Um, I think sometimes also those sorts of noise, you know, if I lived in a mining town and there was noise from mining machinery, it probably meant that I, I had a secure job in the mining field and so I was pretty happy about hearing that noise. Um, you know, whereas if there was silence, I'd, I might be uh, a little bit annoyed because it may, may mean that I've lost my job. That, that, so mm, that gets back know, to the psychology of exactly noise. the psychology of the noise. Now, Liz, what has changed in the acoustic engineering field in the last ten years that surprised or intrigued you? Uh, I, I think mainly the technology and software that's available. That's that's something that's really changed. But in terms of everything else, um, apart from you know a couple of minor legislation changes. I don't think there's actually been a lot um, that's really changed in acoustic engineering. Like the, the things that I did in the um, as a consultant, you know, 10 years ago are very similar to, to what I do now. Um, but, you know, having said that, uh, obviously the, the population growth is probably one thing that is affecting the built environment, which then affects acoustic engineering. So, so that has changed a lot. And probably the relationship with planning has probably become a lot stronger, I can imagine, within that 10 years. Yes, I think people's, people's awareness, I think, of, their, of the acoustic environment may have improved. Now, Liz, this is a, a, might be a field outside your expertise, but I, I'm amazed and just admire the work of companies like Cochlear who are doing some incredible work with restoration of hearing. Yes. Um, can you just briefly touch on on that or your observations on how repair to hearing is going? Yeah, it, it is outside my expertise, but I too am, am pretty amazed by, you know, um, the technologies that are involved in that. Uh, and, you know, I think, I think it's, it's interesting that, um, you, you know, you can, you can put this, uh, cochlear in and expose people uh to you know an, a completely new environment and i often wonder actually if if they prefer it or if 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 people who have had hearing difficulties um almost uh you know grow fond of their cone of silence if you like and so sometimes the exposure to this new noisy environment um could be quite confronting so i i don't really know much about it but it's an area that i would like to to learn more about. And Liz, if you had six months away from your normal work to undertake a research project, what would you research? Well, I would like to actually pursue something in the virtual reality space. And that's getting back to uh, the area that Peter asked me about previously, you know, how can we make um, this, this acoustic information more accessible um, to the layperson? Uh, my what I would like to do is is be able to um, to set up some kind of soundscape with virtual reality headsets where I could show, you know, planners, decision makers or, or people 
um, a proposed soundscape within the actual environment. So, for instance, you know, if you were going to buy an apartment next to the corner hotel, I could give you my virtual reality headset and and play a program. You know, you'd have headphones, and that you would you would feel what it would be like to be in that apartment and hear exactly what it would be like. Um, you know, when the corner hotel was you know hosting some large bands or. Or, you know, same if you're in the in the countryside and you were going to have a wind farm next door to you, we, we could set up the virtual reality so you could actually see what it looked like and hear exactly what it looked like as well. That's probably one of the most practical and um, I guess most logical answers I think we've ever had to that question. <laughs> oh, is there well, really? well, I'd well, really like to do it. Yeah, well, Liz, I, I think that's going to be um, with us in 10 years' time. Well, I hope so. I mean, it's getting there slowly, but what I'd like to do is really have some kind of, you know, like just a little mobile kit that I could take to, um, you know, to, to VCAT or to the planners and say, well, you know, I, I can describe 60 decibels to you, but how about we all put this on now and, you know, it's all calibrated. So this is exactly what it's going to sound like and look like in real time. That's such a worthy, worthy hope i think Liz, before we wrap up i've got a special plea i hate the sound of the new trams can't oh we, what don't you like we, can't we make them more romantic and and happy not this do you awful, like the old rattlers yeah with, i want with that the, back with the uh, pneumatic I, the pneumatic I, I, pump that comes on <laughs> I, I, well that lovely bell that they used to have the old w yep. class trams and <laughs> Liz, please, can can you? Oh, you know people everywhere. You get that that. You know, it, it would make such a good change to the cityscape if if we could have pleasant instead of the coming. whirring noise. Oh, so just we just that. need more of the city circle tram noise. Yes, yes, please. Maybe yeah. you should just put more speakers in the trams and just play the old school noises. I was going to say that you can get some Apple Apple um, ear pods. <laughs> and have have the noise of uh, old fashioned trams coming through his ears. <laughs> Maybe that can be part of the virtual reality. Exactly. Thing that we're no. <laughs> now, now, Liz, I know you'll look follow that through for me. I appreciate that. Now, <laughs> no ha- how do you refresh and relax? Um, well, I like to go mountain bike riding. I've got some awesome mountain bike tracks just up the road from where I live. Uh, we also have a vineyard down here, so every now and then I just walk through the vines and do a few things in there. Um, Reading. I'm very good at, I've become very good at doing nothing actually, I have to say. <laughs> um, so I, I can sit on the couch and, and read a book for hours and, and just get get involved in or get involved in some kind of research on the internet. Um, well, but well. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I've learned to appreciate some very simple things in life, I think, over the last, last few months. And, you know, I just enjoy just a, a mountain bike ride or walking up the hill even. Well, that leads us to Podcast Extra or Culture Corner, Jess. Yeah. Um, Liz, something that you've read, seen, watched, listened to, and also I've got one other question. What instrument did you play growing up? Uh, I played a couple of instruments. So my main instruments were um, piano and clarinet, and then I took up uh, percussion and drums. I played in a, a 
Junior Symphony Orchestra for quite a few years. And then more recently, I started learning the cello, but I'm really terrible at the cello. So I love the cello. <laughs> I've been wanting to learn it for years. Well, you won't love it if you hear me play it, Jess, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I played the violin growing up, oh, so I'm, I'm used to that sort of screechy yes. and probably, you know, what you were talking about before, the, the noise levels associated with yeah. that are probably very unplugged for the rest of my family but um excellent we'll, we'll have to get together and do some duets sometime yes, yes. definitely um and in terms of reading I, I read this really interesting book called digital minimalism by cal newport and it's just about how you know in this day and age we're constantly connected to our devices and um i don't use social media a lot but obviously you know always in contact with emails or listening to podcasts and so I used to, during lockdown, I was walking every day and um, listening to a podcast as I walked. Um, but after reading the book, I decided to leave my phone at home and started what they call solitude walks. And I just found it really refreshing. I found I was able to collect my thoughts a lot more productively um, and, and just really, you know, took the time to admire, admire the, the nature and um, everything around me. Mm. Jess, what, what's, uh, what's your podcast extra culture corner? contribution well probably less about culture but um i've been doing a lot of gardening recently um as you know i um, bought a house mid-covid which is a great idea um and now trying to fix up our garden which has been i think a very sort of healing and very relaxing kind of process i think you know the the research that goes into it because we've only got a very very small garden so we need to make it perfect of course so, yeah, the research associated with that, but then also just the time of, you know, having your, your fingers and your hands in the dirt and it's just been a really lovely process that, that I've really, really enjoyed. So highly recommend some gardening and healing that comes with that. And um, what about you, Pete? Well, on a botanical theme, Jess, um, as you know, I'm doing a lot of, you know, my replanting program up at the farm. And to learn, Liz, that's basically collecting gum nuts uh, local to the property and then growing them up through seedlings and then planting them out. Um, I learned a lot from YouTube you know, about that and also books and apps and things like that. I, I was just, I was a bit dissatisfied, Jess, with what I'd seen, so I've decided to make a series on YouTube uh, on growing eucalyptus. So I've already released the first two films, which is film two and three. I haven't done film one yet. And the and that sort of collecting film one will be collecting the gum nuts in the field, which I've already done, but I didn't film. Two is growing, you know, harvesting the seeds and, and, and putting them in seed trays and then transferring them across. And the final film will be, you know, planting them out in the field. So it's about a nine-month program. But I just um, making these films has been a lot of fun. So How many if you want to learn about it, Jess, you can look it up on about? YouTube. You can look my name up and you'll see eucalyptus growing. <laughs> So, Peter, is that koala stock as well? Like, is that food, are they mm. trees that are suitable for um, koalas to live in? Yeah, there's eight, uh, eight types of gums on the property, Liz, and there are koalas on the property. Oh, fantastic. So, so you know, there's messmates, uh, yellow yes. gum, um, uh, yellow gum, uh, red uh, ironbark, um, uh, messmate, you know, uh, all sorts of things. But, oh, that's great because I understand the koala habitat is, you know, um, falling away so are you doing your bit to improve it i'm trying to and you know there's there's um noxious trees in there which we're getting rid of you know the pines have spread like crazy so getting them out and then you know part of the replacement planting is doing that but you know with with uh 
like the yellow gums, there's different subspecies. So it's important to get the ones that are indigenous to that area rather than, you know, just buy seed elsewhere. But it's, it's a gloriously fun project. That's great. Are you, do you do any honey or anything like that as well with bees? Uh, Jeez, Liz, I've just put some bees in. I can talk to hours about this. Oh, it's hours just, and hours. hours. <laughs> no, it's just that you mentioned bees. yellow gum, and I know that the honey always, you know, adopts some of the flavours or it, it does. Um, characters the, of the trees. And the yellow gum's in, 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 in blossom at the moment, so the bees are going nuts. But I did learn, like, for Messmate, it's got a very caramel-tasting honey, but the bee master warned me, he said, look, the bees when are on this, they go absolutely feral and turn nasty. So... It's the, the world of bees, Jess. Is it like is it like the cocaine for bees? Is it? <laughs> I, I don't. I think it could be the crack, but I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. But I it's think we a should lot do of a podcast so, on bees. It's a oh, really no, good idea. No, 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 no. But so I'm making these films, Liz, and it's just I'm only go for five minutes, and I'm a bit daggy in it. But yeah. um, I Never. just want to put something back. Just want to put something back. That's great. So, how do you think the noise of your bees affects your neighbours? <laughs> uh, uh, well, they're well into the property. But uh, Liz, it's funny. I when I used to have them ten years ago, I would lie down next to the beehive on you know on a nice day and just listen to the bees. Yeah, that's wonderful. What a great what a great sound. Whereas I, I imagine other people walking through, if they they heard that noise, they'd be fearful and start running away. Yeah, yeah. Well, bees are very sensitive to people's psychology so if you're nervous they get nervous anyway we, let's not talk about bees liz you've been a fantastic uh, guest i've learned so much and jess we're going to get some sweet sounding uh, trams soon. <laughs> no no you're going to get a sweet sounding um track to play on your ipod yeah definitely <laughs> or your walkman if you still got one peter i'll put it on a cassette for you specially <laughs> No, that's, that's old school. I like that. Liz, <laughs> thanks so much for being part of our, our thanks, podcast. Liz. And thanks, no, listeners, thank you. for listening in your busy lives. And, Jess, you're, you're terrific always. Thanks, Pete. That's been great. And thanks, Liz. We really appreciate your time. No, thanks very much for having me. It was great. Thank you. <laughs>